Being in a good mood is really great, and most languages have lots of words to describe the experience, like happy, cheerful, joyful, and so on. The same goes for the languages of the Bible. In ancient biblical Hebrew, there's a variety of words, like simcha, sason, or gil. In the Greek New Testament, there's kara, euphersune, or agaliasis. Each word has its own unique nuance, but they all basically refer to the feeling of joy and happiness. Now what makes these biblical joy words interesting is noticing the kinds of things that bring happiness, and also seeing how joy is a key theme that runs through the whole story of the Bible. Let's start with sources of joy. On page one of the Bible, God says that this world is very good. And so naturally, people find joy in beautiful and good things of life, like growing flocks or an abundant harvest on the hills. The poet of Psalm 104 says a good bottle of wine is God's gift to bring joy to people's hearts. People find joy at a wedding or in their children. There's even a Hebrew proverb that compares the joy that perfume brings to your nose with the joy a good friend brings to your heart. However, human history isn't just a joy fest. The biblical story shows how we live in a world that's been corrupted by our own selfishness. It's marked by death and loss. And this is where biblical faith offers a unique perspective on joy. It's an attitude God's people adopt, not because of happy circumstances, but because of their hope in God's love and promise. So when the Israelites were suffering from slavery in Egypt, God raised up Moses to lead them into freedom. And the first thing the Israelites did was sing for joy. Even though they were in the middle of a desert, they were vulnerable, the promised land was still far away, they rejoiced anyway. Later biblical poets looked back on this story and they remembered how the Lord caused his people to leave with joy, his chosen ones with shouts of joy. This joy in the wilderness, this was a defining moment, a way of saying that the joy of God's people is not determined by their struggles, but by their future destiny. This theme appears later in Israel's story, when Israel suffered under the oppression of foreign empires. The prophet Isaiah looked for a day when God would raise up a new deliverer like Moses. That's when those redeemed by the Lord will return to Zion with glad shouts, with eternal joy crowning their heads. Happiness and joy will overtake them. And while the Israelites waited, they chose joy to anticipate their future redemption. This is why it's significant that when Jesus of Nazareth was born, it was announced as good news that brings great joy. We're told that Jesus himself rejoiced and gave thanks to God his Father when he began to announce the kingdom of God. He even taught his followers the same joy in the wilderness, saying, when people reject you or persecute you for following me, rejoice, be very glad, because your reward is great in heaven. After his death and resurrection, Jesus commissioned his followers to go out and announce the good news that he was the risen king of the world. And as they did so, the early Christian communities were known for being full of joy, even when they were persecuted. Like when the Apostle Paul was sitting in a dirty Roman prison, he could say that he's chosen joy, even if he gets executed. He called this the joy of faith, or joy in the Lord. He believed it was the gift of God's Spirit, a sign that Jesus' presence is with you, inspiring hope in the midst of hardship. And when you believe that Jesus' love has overcome death itself, joy becomes reasonable in the darkest of circumstances. Now this doesn't mean that you ignore or suppress your sorrow. That's not healthy or necessary. Paul often expressed his grief about missing loved ones or losing friends or his own freedom. He called it being full of sorrow and yet rejoicing. As he acknowledged his pain, he also made a choice to trust Jesus that his loss wouldn't be the final word. 
This is very different from the trite advice to turn that frown upside down. Christian joy is a profound decision of faith and hope in the power of Jesus' own life and love. And that's what biblical joy is all about. So the birth of Christ, his birth, his birth foretold in ancient writings was a miracle that would threaten an empire. His birth would bring forth a revolution of new life, and his birth would, would shine light into a world that was ultimately filled with darkness. His birth would change the world forever. His birth would be the greatest gift that God had ever given anyone. And thus, we rejoice. Thus, we're full of joy. It's good to see you all this evening. Thank you uh, for allowing me to, to speak to you. Uh, I thought we were doing this on Wednesday night, so obviously I did something with a Christmas theme, but it's all right. Just imagine it's yesterday, and we'll be good to go. Um, do you want me to teach this, or do you want me to preach this? Teach? Okay, so we'll teach tonight. If you have anything to say, just, just throw it out there, because once I get going, I start. Um, and, and so if you have something, let me know. So as we rejoice in this, every single year, every single year we rejoice something similar to the one is born. For, for, for unto us, uh, a son is, is given, or, or, a, or a child is given and a son is born, or vice versa, whatever version you have. Now those are stirring words, and they're powerful words, and they're words that thousands of years ago applied to the birth of Christ and still today. But what leads up to that verse? See, I've told people a lot that, that one, of the worst things, one of the best things we ever did, yet one of the worst things we ever did, was add chapters and verses to the Bible. It, it's, it's nice because it's easy to get somewhere, but it's not good because how many of you all know John 3.16 by heart? Who knows John 3.17? If you have your hand up, I'm going to ask you to quote it. So you see what happens there? That's what verses have done for our Bible. So when you see, read something in the whole entire context, so, so what leads up to that verse? And it's because there's other verses before it. For unto us a child is given, unto us a son is born. What else is there? Do we overlook something when we don't read the rest of the chapter, or the full context, or something we've never considered? Or, or maybe we just like that because it's cool and it's pretty and it goes with Christmas. Is there more we can possibly learn? This evening we'll be in the book of Isaiah, and we're looking at the birth and the coming of Christ, and we're going to answer those questions as we go throughout this scripture. So first this evening, I want you to remember this word, the cradle. First remember the cradle. So when, when, when parents find out they're expecting their first child, what's one of the first things they go out and buy? Crib. Thank you. Thank you. Crib. Now we're expecting our second child. Next time you see us, we'll probably have another son. Um, we're not going to buy another crib because we have one. We're, you know, he's getting a hand-me-down. But, but for your first child, you go out and buy a crib. And then everything else is typically matched around the crib and the sex of the child. And that's kind of the order it goes in. Well, Mary and Joseph didn't have that option yet for us, for, for, for you and I. When we had a child, we probably had a crib before we had a child, right? Did you have it ready, set up, good to go? How many dads got angry trying to put it together? That, that, that's what you do. Well, Mary and Joseph didn't have that option, yet, yet, yet God ensured there would be a cradle there. We know it is a feeding trough. Let's start here, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress, meaning there will be joy, no more gloom. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land, a deep darkness of, a, a, of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And you can think, oh, wait, wait, I feel like I've heard this before. I feel like I've heard this exact same verse. 
I, I feel like dad preached this before. He probably has. Matthew chapter 4, verse 13 through 16. Leaving Nazareth, they went to live in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulon and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulon and Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. So, why was this such a dark time in history? I mean, every generation, you know, thinks it's gotten worse, it's gotten worse, it's never gotten better. You know, it's gotten worse. But, but I mean, really, we started out with 12 disciples minus one plus one, and now we're in the hundreds of millions. So Christianity's doing all right. But what made this time so dark? Mortality rates? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a good answer. Because, I mean, before this in the Old Testament, they were living to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years old. And, and now you're having kids at 13, 14, because you're only going to live to 30, 35. So thank you, Terry. What else, what else would make this time so dark? People are not only turning from God, they were turning from the prophets. Okay. Thank you. The, the, not only had they turned from God, they had turned from, from, from the prophets. Yeah, excellent answer. I mean, they even got called out for that, for killing the prophets. So thank you. Anybody else? Roman oppression? Yes, sir. Yeah, they were, they were being oppressed by the, by, by the Romans. Yes? Well, my question is talking about the time of Isaiah or Matthew. Uh, Matthew, good question. <laughs> yeah, the... Okay, so the, 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 the Roman Empire was, was holding all this over their heads. And, and the Romans were pretty brutal. They didn't care about the Jews at all. So. Anybody else? Yeah, God hadn't spoken to them. And that's how they, they heard from God, was through the prophets. But if you're not going to listen to your prophets, you're not going to hear your God. And, and so it was a very, very dark time. So Isaiah is telling us the child who's going to be given, the son that was going to be born, the Messiah, he was going to bring this light into this dark world, the, 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 this bright light. It's kind of simple to understand, really. In, in other words, for unto us a child is given, unto us a son is born, and he will bring us light. You, know, you ever... Uh, see a baby and you're like, oh, you just light up my life. Or you bring joy to my life. Little, little kids can do that. But, but think about a ship out at sea. Now think of a lighthouse. What is a lighthouse there for? To guide the ship. For the captain to watch so, that, so the ship can be guided into the deep sea safely. Well, Jesus is light of the world. As we fix our gaze upon him and we watch him and we gaze upon his teachings, we'll be guided into spirituality safely. Or, or, or what about this? How much darkness does it take to extinguish light? How much darkness does it take to extinguish a light? Okay, it can't. I heard that from everywhere. It can't. In fact, the darker it is, the brighter that light's going to be. It cannot happen. All the darkness in the world cannot extinguish a single light. But, in all honesty, there's no such thing as darkness. There's also no such thing as cold. Darkness is the absence of light. God created light, right? Are we told God created darkness? No, God created light. Darkness is the absence of light. Cold is the absence of heat. God created the sun, correct? Are we told he created cold? Never. So, 
all the darkness in the world cannot extinguish light, and the darker and the darker and the darker it gets, the brighter that light's going to be. Thus, the exact prophecy Isaiah proclaimed to us, the focus of the promise, this child was going to bring light. The light would guide us home safely, and this light would never be quenched. So it's no wonder that the Gospel of John starts out with these words. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And Jesus himself said in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus is coming in a very dark time of, in history. Very dark time in history. And, and, and if, you, if you look at, even when the church gets started, and you look at some of the churches, you know, I, I hear people say things, well, this church does this, and this church does that, or that church of Christ up the road. And I'm thinking, you better be careful, because that's the bride of Christ you're talking about. Go read the book of Corinthians and tell us we're that bad. Anybody here ever had sex with their mothers? Nobody? Me neither. <laughs> that's what they were doing. You know, I think we've come a long way. In fact, people, people say, we need to be like the early church. We need to be like the early church. And I understand the understanding. We need to be scriptural. We need to follow the Bible. We should, 2,000 years later, we should be way better than the early church. Way better. We should have much more improved. And, and, and that was the whole point of Jesus coming, was to bring this light into this dark world. Think of Luke chapter 2. The shepherds are out in the fields. What do shepherds do? Watch the sheep, tend the sheep, protect the sheep. That's uh, maybe, maybe goats sometimes, di different, different things. And, and it was night. Seeing that it was nighttime, it would have been really dark. And suddenly out of nowhere, glory shone around them, and they were engulfed, literally engulfed in life, or in light. Think about that. I, I don't think this was done by chance. Uh, uh, just before we're told about the birth of Christ, just before it, God's displaying like some show and tell here. The child is born in Bethlehem, and he was bring, to bring light into a dark world, and these shepherds were getting the first taste of what Jesus Christ was about to offer. And in, in this field, these shepherds got the first taste of what Jesus was offering. In, in this light, this light shone around. This is this light that was coming. And just before he went to the cross, uh, just before he, he went to the cross, he, he, he offered, oh, what was his name? The guy they let free. Barabbas, thank you. I had a mind block there for a second. Just before he went to the cross, he offered Barabbas the, 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 the first taste of what he was about to offer the world. That was freedom. And, and, and so these these these. The shepherds see this, Luke chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone. I like that word, shone. You don't hear it very much anymore. It shone around them. So God waited until it was dark, in a dark world, in a dark earth, in a dark time. And he, bam, like that, flooded, flooded their world with light. Flooded. Anybody remember the song, uh, O Little Town of Bethlehem? You think of the song, O Little Town of Bethlehem. It's a beautiful hymn, and we don't hear it as much anymore, but in verse 1 it says, O Little Town of Bethlehem, how still we see the lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark street shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Now, but the shepherds felt a little something similar to that. So as we've seen, God repeatedly drives home 
We live in a dark world. That's what I'm doing for you all right now. I'm driving this point home. You'll be thinking, yeah, yeah, we've heard it over and over and over and over. There's a point to this. God repeatedly drives this home, or as Paul writes in Ephesians 4, 17 and 18, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. Uh, he insists on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened to their understanding and separated from the life of God because their ignorance in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Okay, remember that. They are darkened in their understanding. So not only do we work, live in a dark world, people are now darkened in their understanding. What does this mean? Who is darkened in their understanding? You know anybody like that? I mean, don't like start pointing people out in here, but what does that mean, darkened in their understanding? Okay, you can, you can kill a baby in its mother's womb with a good conscience. Yeah, I would say that's pretty dark. Anybody else? What is darkened? For them or us today. Blinded. Yes, yeah, blinded. So it's like their mind's blinded. Yeah, I like that. So, so those who live without God are darkened in their understanding. I'm going to try to explain this on an easy level the best I can because that's how I like to learn things. They're darkened in their understanding, but, but what exactly does that mean? It means they don't think clearly. People don't think clearly. Think about this. If I'm walking on the fringe of darkness and light, meaning I'm, I'm lukewarm in my walk. I'm like right on the edge there. And then I take that first step into darkness, and I think I'm okay. Nothing bad happened. I didn't get struck by lightning. I didn't get hit by a bus. And so I take another step into darkness, and I'm like, I'm still okay. Everything's still all right. I'm not dead. And, 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 and what happens is one of two things. You either come back to the light, or you get so far out in the darkness you think you can fly because falling doesn't hurt you. See, with, with, with this, not only are, are you now walking in darkness, your understanding is being darkened. You believe you are Christian enough. You believe you are Christian enough to go into the realm of Satan and not be harmed. Your mind is darkened. Your understanding is darkened. How foolish do we have to do to believe something like that? But really, you slowly begin to fade more and more and more and more into the darkness because it's such a slow fade, you don't really see it, and you come more and more and more away from the light. Now, I'm going somewhere with this, but you see, without God guiding our thinking, everything depends on our personal values, our personal likes, our personal wants, or the opinions and values of, of, of our friends or those who we follow into sin. And as such, these values are completely inconsistent all the time. They're darkened. Ephesians tells us people who think like this become calloused. They're greedy, they're impure, and above all that, they become really, really, really hypocritical. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness. There you go, deep darkness. A light has dawned. First this evening, we saw the crate. And when we, before we have children, when we find out we're pregnant, you go and you buy a crib. It's the first thing you do. We want to get this crib ready. But you've got to have a child to put in that crib, right? So, so they were given a cradle in the stable. Probably we call it a barn sometime. It probably would have been a cave. Um, and, and so they were given a, a, a cradle, you could say, which was a feeding trough. And the cradle would have been needed to lay the child in. And that's, what, that's, that's the cradle of it all. That's the cradle of everything. That's the, the, the foundation as to why God decided to send this light. The very child we've been talking about so much. First the cradle, second the child. The child needed a foundation, needed a cradle to come into. Watch what happens when people don't have this child in their life. Remember, I think it was last year, 
when everybody was making a, a huge debacle over a song that had been around for like 60 years, and many said it was a Christmas song. Well, to call it a Christmas song is kind of an insult to Christ. It's not a nice song. How many of you know what song I'm talking about? Okay, baby, it's cold outside. <laughs> Dad just said they didn't live in South Georgia. <laughs> yeah, it was 20 when we left Ohio, so I'm loving this. But how many of you, well, I would say how many have heard the song? Everybody's heard the song. Uh, how, how could you avoid it? For those not familiar with it, it was made famous by Dean Martin in the 60s, and he's singing back and, and, and forth and, uh, with, a, with a woman, and she's saying she's got to go home, and, and, and he's pressuring her to stay the night, and in the second verse, the woman says, the, the neighbors might think, say what's in my drink, so he like slipped her a roofie, you know, and I wish I, I knew how to break this spell, so now she's like filling the roofie, I ought to say no, 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 sir, I, I, at least I'm going to say that I'm tired, or I tried, you know, she's going to give in, but at least I tried. Again, the song's been around for 60 years, man, but, but now, finally, now people want to say something about it. Why? Well, see, a lot of people have been influenced by this thing called Me Too culture. Anybody heard of that? Me Too? You never heard of it? Are you on Twitter? Okay, good for you. So, and, and, and they begin to complain. People are complaining, this song should not be played. And I wouldn't lose any sleep if it wasn't played, to be honest, because really I don't care about it. And it's really not a great song. But, but be, because the thinking of our world has rejected God, there's a, a darkness in how people who are upset with this song reason about it. Their, 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 their mind are darkened. The same people who are angry about this song have no problem listening to even worse songs. The same people that listen to this song, talking about, 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 about this song, the same people listening to this oftentimes have, have, have slept together, commit adultery, have multiple sexual partners, or they, they listen to some other songs where artists curse and call women every evil name in the book, or the same people read books and watch movies like Fifty Shades of Grey, and they never call them out. But they call out a 60-year-old song. Why? That's a question. Why? Why do they not have the courage to call out the famous singer up there getting a Grammy for a, a, a filthy laced albums? Why don't they have the courage to, to call out the, the, the actor who, 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 who's the same thing, or actress who, who's nude in half her movies? Why don't they have the courage to call that out, but they have the courage to call out a 60-year-old song? Why? Okay, accountability in their life? Yeah people that are, that, are, that are living today, you know, they know that if they call them out, they're going to suffer a for it. Absolutely. You know, these folks right here, you know, they're more than likely in the dust of the earth. What you know, can Dean Martin do? That, <laughs> right. So, so thank you for that. So thus evil abounds and darkness abounds and people embrace it and embrace it and embrace it. But, but, but occasionally, because our, our, our culture decides to show some righteous indignation every once in a while about one song or one movie or, or, or one book, now we feel good and righteous because we stood against 60-year-old evil. But the next day they go right back to reading and watching and listening to, to the same stuff or worse that focuses on impurity and sensuality and sexuality over and over and over. Why? Easy, because their righteous indignation is nothing more than their own wrath opposed to the shocking bad tempers of other people who are throwing it out there and then they're jumping on board and you mix your wrath with their bad tempers and occasionally something might stick. But it doesn't last. It doesn't last. And, and, and honestly, we could say that's the same way for us about Christians too. 
sadly. You know, I think the Christian community as a whole, the biggest thing we've done in 20 years is stand in a Chick-fil-A line. I mean, think about that. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us who lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. And thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Did you notice that? The dark way of thinking corrupts reasoning. It messes up the mind. It makes your mind blinded. People don't think straight because God is not guiding how they think. That's how an entire culture can get mad at a 60-year-old song, but not filth coming out 60 seconds ago. Yet once we become Christians, God delivers us from the domain of deep darkness. How? Easy. A child was born. A son was given. A Jesus stepped into this deep darkness of a world and became light. He shone light. And we've been transferred out of the world of darkness into the kingdom of light where he lights up our life and he forgives our sin and he rescues us from this darkness. And because of this, there's no more shame or no more fear or no more guilt or no more judgment. And that's something worth being thankful for. That's something worth celebrating. But remember this before we go any further. Christ could be born a thousand times in Galilee, but it's all in vain if he's not born in me. Christ could be born a thousand times in Galilee, but it's all in vain if he's not born in me. Now, this doesn't mean we're not going to mess up occasionally, but it does mean this. Because we love Jesus, and because we want Jesus Christ to run our lives, we're going to change, even if little by little. Some may change great bounds by great bounds, but that's rare at first. Either way, we do this until we reflect more and more and more and more and more light into a dark world. Remember, this child was sent to do that, to bring light into a dark world, knowing that we also know we're going to stumble. Because before we came to light, we came out of darkness. That's what happens. Things that made us sin, habits, addictions, they might make us stumble again. But here's the difference. This time we don't stay in the darkness because we've already been received by the light. And we get better and better. As Proverbs chapter 4 verse 19 says, The way of the wicked is like deep, deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. They don't know what makes them stumble. What a sad state to be in. You don't even know what's tripping you up. But we know. We know what stumbles. We know what makes us trip. We know what makes us fall. And once our light gets brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter, we see those things better. And it gets easier. It's easier to get up and it's easier to move on and then we help others do the same. Why is that? Remember, we've all, fall, we've all, we, we, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Remember that. And, and don't get too big-headed. You know, I've been in church 50 years and I haven't stumbled in 14 now, don't get too big ahead to remember, it wasn't, it wasn't sinners that put Jesus on the cross. It was the religious. So think about that. But, but we, we, we didn't become Christians because we were righteous enough. You know, I've heard people say that. You know, I'm not good enough to get there yet. Well, that's the whole point. We're not righteous enough to earn God's love. We, didn't, we became Christians because we were tired of living the way we were living, and so we accepted this free gift of Jesus Christ of a salvation. And when, when he accepted us, he, 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 he pulled us out of darkness we once lived in, and that's what Christmas is all about. And if you missed that, you've missed the Jesus part of the story, and you've really missed everything. You know, a lot of people tell me, don't talk about Christmas in church. I've heard that so many times, so many times. You know, and we're going to go and, let me look around real quick. We got any little kids in here? How old's the one you just looked at? Did you just look at a little kid? 
Seven months? All right, he don't understand it. Good. Or she. <laughs> so, so people all the time, you know, don't talk about this, don't talk about that, don't talk about this. Like the Bible says, thou shalt take December off. You know, and, I, and even the church I preach at, you know, people talk about the, the, the whole Santa story and the reindeer and Rudolph and the bright nose and blah, 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 and that's all good and that's all great. And then I tell the truth and people get mad. And I don't, I don't want to say it too bad because I just saw some other little kids. But still, it's, it, it's, it's what the world's missed out on. So first this morning, the cradle. We had the cradle. Second, the child who came and laid in this cradle. This, this cradle was really the foundation, the cradle of it all. Third, as cute as it is, that child didn't remain a baby. A lot of people want Jesus to remain a baby because it's, it, 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 you don't have to answer to a baby. You know, they love the nativity scenes and the baby part of it. That's the fun part of the manger. But he grew into what would become the Christ. The cradle was the cradle of it all, the foundation holding the baby for a time being. But that baby grew and brought more light into this world that, than this world had ever seen. The cradle held the child who became the Christ. A, a lady was a devout atheist, and a friend invited her to church, so she went. And something struck her, and she began to, to read the Bible, and, and, and it turned her life around. Today, she's a faithful member, but she'll tell everyone, becoming a Christian ruined my love for Christmas. Now, honestly, that, that seems like an odd thing to say until you hear her story. During her childhood, Christmas was normal. It was one day of the year she could actually count on there being some sort of harmony in her divided family. At age five, her parents divorced, and they established two homes. One home was headed by a sophisticated East Coast-born feminist mother, the other by a down-to-earth Idaho-bred father who, who was pretty conservative in his values and views. Thus, her worlds were quite different. Feminist mother, conservative farmer father. However, the Christmas season was a magical time, and it made it even more special because they got to experience the magic twice. She would help pick, her out, pick out and decorate two Christmas trees, and she would help wrap two sets of gifts, and, and, and she would have two separate Christmas dinners. And whenever she woke up on Christmas morning, her and her brother were greeted by mountains of, of presents piled under the tree, and they would spend hours, hours, and hours plowing through them, and, and then they would look at each other with delight because they realized they would get to do it all over again in a few hours at the other house. Thus, for her, Christmas meant two of everything, or almost everything. Church, they only did once a year because they couldn't go with both parents. And the services were, were at the same time. Her mother was a once-a-year Catholic who had no faith, and sometimes they would go with her. And her father was an Episcopalian, and going to, to church on, on Christmas Eve was, was service was kind of like the high point of, the, of what they did. They lit candles and sang carols, and it just felt right in the world. The truth be told, even after those church services, their minds were occupied counting down the hours until the start of the presents. See, Christmas in her family, in both her families, was like a lot of people today. A cultural event focused on the exchange of gifts and very little to do with Jesus Christ. Yet that's the nature of the world that darkens everything. The world wants to take Christ out of Christmas. I'm not going to do it in this building or out of it. It removes Christ from the day that bears his name. So we can focus on what pleases us. Santa. The lights, the sounds, the smells, the food, the presents. It's all about us. Not Jesus. Thus Christmas without Christ is the order of the day in a dark world. And, and, and so my prayer is that we completely in, in, enjoy everything we've had with our families as dad spoke about. But at the same time we're careful not to fall into this trap. That, 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 this trap that darkness wants to remove Christ from everything. Darkness wants to remove Christ from that cradle. That's what the world wants to do. Let's not assist them in it. If Christ had never been born, there goes the cradle. There goes the foundation of it all. 
falling into the trap of Christmas, disregards the cradle that held a child that one day would become the Christ. That is what we celebrate, the birth of the one who would bring us to light, and far be it from me not to do it. Yet, yet isn't it odd that this king was born in a stable? Isn't that odd? I mean, kings live in castles, right? Palaces. They're rich. They're filthy rich. But this king was dirt poor. Look at the sacrifice his parents gave. Two doves. Anybody could give two doves. That was the poorest of the poor. And he was born in a barn. Isn't that odd? No, actually, it was perfect. It was absolutely perfect. For those who don't understand, I would tell them, listen closely. Listen closely. No problem. No person. No person, however poor. The, the poorest of the poor, no person should be born in a cow stall. You got hay on the floor and animals in the hay and dung and, and feces in the hay and no baby should be placed in a feeding trough. For, for crying out loud, the donkey and cows and sheep and pigs' noses have been in there. No baby's first breath should be that of a barn. I don't care how poor you are. Nobody deserves that. No baby should be wrapped in those rags. They smell like sheep and cow. And speaking of smells, watch where you step. But wait, perhaps our world, perhaps your life, re resembles this, this Bethlehem stable. Crude in some spots, maybe smelly in others, maybe not so much glamour, maybe not always perfect and neat. Maybe people in your inner circle remind you of these stable animals. Some grazing like sheep, just doing their thing, whatever. Others stubborn like donkeys. Maybe that cow in the corner looks a lot like your next-door neighbor. Yet for you, the manger tells us one thing. From birth till death, the manger tells us one thing. This stinky, feces-infested, dung-filled manger tells us one thing. There's no place God will not go. There's one place God will not go. No place is too common, no person is too hardened, no distance is too far. There's no person he cannot reach, there's no limit to his love. When Because when Christ was born in this dirty barn, so was our hope. And that's what I celebrate all year. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Years ago in England, a school teacher helped her students construct mangers in, in, in the corner of her classroom, and her pupils were excited to set up the model uh, barns and stables and, 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 and on the cover, cover the floor with real straw and arrange the figures of Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the wise men and the animals, all facing a little cradle in which a tiny doll would represent the baby Jesus. When it was all finished, the, the, this one little boy was just entranced by it all, and he kept looking, and he had a puzzled look on his face, and the teacher finally asked, is there something bothering you? And his eyes were still glued to the manger scene when he said, teacher... Where does God fit into all this? Where does God fit in to all this? We could easily say that in our lives today. We're busier than we've ever been before, ever. We all have our own mangers, our own stables, our own, our own, our own stink in our life. But that's when God comes into it, into the stink. Where does God fit into all this? For you tonight, where does God fit in? Anybody want to answer that? 
Where does God fit in? Robbie, I appreciated your prayer when you said, you know, coming up in 2020, let, let us do things for God. Let us be more than, in, in essence, what I got out of it, let us not be pew sitters. Well, chairs. Where does God fit in for you today in what we could still call a dark world? Where does God fit in? Dad told me to end by eight. I'm not going to if somebody doesn't answer this question. Everywhere. Everywhere. Thank you. Perfect answer. Everywhere. God is everywhere and he's our everything. So if you don't know where God fits in, then you've missed the meaning of the Christ, the child who came out of that cradle. We're not saying you're bad. It's just if you don't know where he fits in, you've missed the entire meaning of him being born. He was born to die. And that's what we celebrate. Thank you all. Any thoughts, questions, comments? Anybody have anything? All right, Chris, would you close us in prayer?